0: Good afternoon, and welcome to this edition of the 21 News Podcast. Keeping kids safe in schools ought to be one of the most basic guarantees any society can offer. And yet, in America, it is a guarantee that falls short on a basis so regularly that it's nearly impossible to keep up with. School shootings in places like Parkland, Uvalde, and Newtown create a uniquely American nightmare that leads to no shortage of theories of how to solve the problem. But do our best intentions equal our best outcomes? Or do we need, in many cases, to rethink the methods we use to try to keep kids safe? With me today to discuss what we know, what we think we know, and what we need to learn is Michael Dorn, executive director of Safe Havens International, a nonprofit focused on analyzing school safety with an eye towards what's most effective. Mike, thanks for being with us.
1: Oh, my pleasure, sir.
0: So I want to start by just hearing a little bit about you. Tell me about you. Tell me about Safe Haven. What you do? What your expertise is?
1: So we're the world's largest K twelve school safety center. We're a nonprofit based out a little place called Juliet, Georgia, but our people live all over different parts of the United States and UK. We've assessed uh, done what we call school security, safety, uh, climate, culture, and emergency preparedness assessments for over eight thousand five hundred K twelve schools in the U S. We've worked in twenty four countries every one of which school shootings are a big issue. Um, We, I've worked in 11, um, and most of those countries, by the way, save Israel, are much more dangerous to schools than the United States. That includes Canada, France, the UK, uh, contrary to popular belief. And I'll talk about why that is and those perceptions and all the bad data that's out there and lack of data. Um, I've been doing this 41 years. I became a police officer at 18 became a school district police chief at 27, uh, was appointed the lead person for the largest school safety center, government center uh, at the time, was the state of Georgia's, I was their lead expert for three or four years. And then I was a lead program manager for the terrorism division of the Georgia Office of Homeland Security after 9-11, and then I've been working with safe havens now for a little over 20 years. we do a lot of things. We help design architects, design safer schools. We do lots of conference keynotes. I've written 28 books. Other analysts have written more than that. We produce over 100 training videos. And as a nonprofit, by the way, we have over 100 or over 50 free training videos on our website. We do a really wide array of things. I've personally worked 23 K-12 active shooter or targeted school shootings in U.S., Canadian, and Mexican schools, a horrific uh, attack on a Christian school field trip in Nairobi at the Westgate Mall involving uh, fully automatic weapons and hand grenades two parents were killed the school did a remarkable job of saving all the children and their staff but unfortunately they lost two parents um we do we we write web courses I mean so we do a lot of different things we've done what we call official post incident reviews uh, or assistance for over 300 catastrophic events and again uh People have this perception that this is a uniquely American problem. That is absolutely not true. They have the perception that we have more school homicides in other countries. That is absolutely not true. In fact, the United States is the only country out of 24 that we've worked in that tracks school homicide. The U.K., Canada, France, India, Trinidad, Tobago, Vietnam. Uh, None of the countries we've worked in actually can give you data on how many people are shot, stabbed and otherwise killed and wounded in schools. So when you see data comparing the United States to other countries, you should look at the United Nations data on homicide risk. The United States, because of the dramatic rise in homicides that we've had in the last few years, we had a 25 percent rise in homicides in the United States according to FBI uniform crime reporting data, which is the biggest increase in the 60 years that they've kept data. And then the year before, and the, I think two years after now, we've had dramatic increases. So our homicide rate, we're having, I know just at one year, we had 5,000 more Americans murdered than the year before. So what we're seeing in the schools with a big increase in shootings this year, uh, which is not in keeping with what we've seen over the last 30 Um You know, that that's consistent with what's happening in the society. It's probably going to affect the schools, too. We've got covid kids that have not been in school for a year or two. We've got the defund the police. We've got no bail. We've got an active shooter school being given a ten thousand dollar bail and release, which is beyond my beliefs. (laughs) I just can't understand that. You know, we've got people with twenty five and thirty gun convictions being released right back out with no bail. And, you know, there's a whole lot of things coming together. Uh, you know, that they're, they're clearly affecting the homicide rate. Um, hopefully that's gonna start to reverse, but just to give you some context, the United States is the third most populous country in the world. If you take the entire populations of all the human beings that live in Canada and Australia, we have more students, 55 million kids in school every day that they have humans in their country. If you add the 9 million educators and school employees, that's more people than live in the United Kingdom. So you have to be very careful and we worked in the UK in 2003, the per capita homicide rate for schools just based on interviews with two metropolitan police officers, which is incomplete data. This is not national data, just London. Their homicide rate was above that of the US per capita. Canada ranks about where we do. I've worked a shooting there, I've keynoted there, worked with schools. They're typically about 10 years behind us on what they do. Um, So, you know, the the idea that our schools are just so dangerous compared to the rest of the world, no one who's ever worked in schools overseas would tell you that, Um, you know, there's no government that has had a really good solution to this. Some countries like Vietnam and the People's Republic of China, you don't see a lot of shootings because both countries have the death penalty for possession of a mere round of ammunition, let alone a gun, and the police will torture a lot of people in both of those countries to, to find out who has a gun. But then you see you know, 28 stabbed with a butcher knife, 14 killed with a knife in a primary school in Beijing, 47 killed in a bus attack in Beijing. You know, so you, know, you have to realize that big stuff happens overseas that doesn't even make the news here. So the, uh, the Sichuan earthquake, which killed what, 14,000 uh, students in one day, that barely got mentioned in this country. The, there's no building codes. In most many of these countries the particularly developing countries that i mentioned so just i think that's pretty important i was attacked with a weapon in 1979 in my high school it's a lot of why i do what i do i was one of three kids cut we don't have good apples and apples data because there was no mandatory reporting prior to the columbine attack in the united states nobody counted officially school homicides now the incomplete data that we had based on media accounts showed an average of 45 to 55 homicides a year from 1970 to 1990. That's almost double what we've seen since 1990. And we've added 15 million students and millions of employees since 1970. So you have to be careful. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't have significant problems, we do. I've worked 23 of the worst shootings in this country's history. They are horrific events, they are terrible. And I'm not saying that we don't need to work on it and we can get better. And another comment you made was is a question you asked, you know, are we doing the right thing? Should we be doing? What is very troubling to those of us in the field is we're often ignoring the stuff that we have very good evidence that to an extent you can expect it. Nothing is going to be, you can't provide hundred percent protection anywhere. We've had white house security breached multiple times you know, the Buckingham Palace, I mean, you, airports, I mean, you know, you can go to some of the most secured places in the world, the prisons. I mean, we've had people build guns and bombs and kill other inmates in prisons, you know. So, I mean, you got to keep in mind there is no perfect answer to all this. However, we could, in my, you know, this is not data that I'm citing, but I've been doing this 41 years. We could probably cut our fatalities in this country easily in half by doing some of the things pretty routinely across the board to do have an impact on most, if not all schools. And when I say that, it's important to understand that the, the and you mentioned this the, the, you know, the high profile shootings like Evolve the Parkland, That's what people focus on. That's 8% of the homicides on K-12 campuses. So most of our murders don't look like that. Now we should have extra attention on those because they're so horrific. But that gets people in the mindset that if my child or my spouse is murdered at a school, it's going to be a guy with a rifle shooting everybody. Forty-five percent of the time, it's a fight that turns into a shooting or a stabbing. Twenty-five percent of the time, it's gang activity, and often it's both. It's gang members fighting and somebody gets shot. So things like student supervision uh, can reduce homicide. It can reduce the more common causes of death. So if you take active assailant events, it's 8% of our homicides on K-12 property. But if you look at the big pie of what causes death, it's it's not even a half of a percent. Again, I'm not saying we don't need to, uh, you know, I mean, write, I write books on this. We do extensive work on it. There's a lot we can do to prevent those. But let's not have a child hit in the parking lot and killed, which kills more people, nine times more people than active shooters do, because we're so focused on you know, the the statistically less likely but catastrophic event. And if we do things right in the parking lot at morning arrival and afternoon dismissal when those parking lot fatalities with students, staff and parents occur, we also reduce our risk from an active shooter or a ex-husband coming to kill his ex-wife as she arrives for work or to kill their child to get back at her or uh, a woman who comes to grab her child against court order to abduct them. Does that make sense?
0: It it does. It's more of a holistic approach where we're Absolutely. recognizing yes. everything yes. and acknowledging that because I, I suppose we can we can be we can hyper focus on things to the detriment of other things. And, and yes. we need to and, we need to not be distracted. You know, details of a school safety plan are generally not public. And so we correct. don't necessarily know everything involved. But there are a number of tools in the toolkit, as it were, that you do hear a lot about. Um, I can think in the past week or two, a, a couple school districts in our area that did things like add metal detectors or add resource officers, for instance, and they sound pretty intuitive. So, I mean, are are, are things like that effective, or do okay. they just so sound good?
1: Both. So, I've helped design metal detectors. I teach how to use them. We use them in different situations in my school district with high risk. I will tell you that airport style. Entry, what we call entry point detection, like an airport or a federal courthouse. the And we cost this out for districts all the time. That's gonna cost between a half a million and a million dollars a year per school and personnel costs to get a rate where you would probably catch a student with a gun on the first attempt, about 60 to 70% of the time. TSA's last audit, the fail rate was 90%. Now, to be fair to TSA, They do pretty good on guns with when they do what we call penetration tests, a person poses a passenger and it's their job to try to smuggle a fake gun in. They catch most of those and and a lot of theirs are bombs, it's really hard to detect explosives compared to a handgun, for example. But I will tell you this every school system we've ever been asked to do penetration tests on. That used entry point metal detection for a traditional higher middle school or their district office where they've had shootings. uh, We've been able to get multiple firearms into that building. It's detection equipment works very well, but to screen people thoroughly is something known as throughput. So, number one, it's not just the metal detector; that's the easy part. We have great metal detectors today. They even pinpoint on the body where the metal that's setting the device off. Because you have to keep in mind, they don't detect guns; they detect. Metal. Right. So the big part is the backpacks, the book bags that takes x-ray. A clear book bags are almost worthless. It's very easy. We we don't show this publicly, but we have a demonstration. We had 26 weapons in an elementary age child's book bag, including a 20-gauge shotgun, taken in half and sawed off. Uh, a fake hand grenade, twelve guns, and then the rest of knives. Okay, and a small book bag, it's very easy to beat that if people intend well with those. Now, metal detectors—what is actually most effective for use of metal detectors for most schools and a lot less expensive—is mm-hmm. random surprise metal detection, which involves demonstrably random selection of groups of students. Okay, mm-hmm. you're going to draw a computer have a computer program draw. Two classroom numbers, you're gonna to go to those classrooms, you're gonna wand or have them walk through a walkthrough. And then you do a bag check. You check, you know, two classrooms and one class period, and then you it's, it's nobody knows when you're gonna do it. It depends on your risk level. That might be done three times a year. High risk district, that might be done every couple of weeks at each secondary school. We might check on Tuesday, then check again on Thursday, and then not for two weeks. It's extremely effective. That will reduce weapons. You know, dramatically compared, it is, I think it's actually more effective than the entry point detection, unless you're willing to hire all the people you've got to have to support. If you look at an airport, you see that army of people with the best equipment made when you go through that line. Mm-hmm. Just imagine 2,500 people trying to go through that line in 15 minutes. They could, they can't handle that. At Hartsfield, right? So, you know, the biggest airports in the world. Now, so what happens is trying to keep the kids. You know, unless you want the kids out in the parking lot for 45 minutes to an hour you know, because they're all coming in a pretty short window, we cut the effectiveness of the screening. Does that make sense? It does. It does.
0: So, Not to mention that having a crowd of people in the parking lot poses its own safety concerns. Exactly. <laughs> so
1: when we were working with Broward County after the shooting of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, we assessed that district, and that was a big issue with people, you know, metal detectors. It does. It sounds so intuitive, unless you, like me, walk through metal detectors all the time with a gun and don't have it go off. You know, they don't check you. <laughs> When I was a cop, I, I've gone through metal Tetris multiple times where they did, you know, that the thing worked It went off, but they didn't do a secondary screening or, you know, I'm ready to show them my badge and they just say, I go running through, you know, <laughs> a lot of times it's a facade. If you, if you go to a ball game and they wand you in less than, I'd say about 120 seconds, I can get two guns in that venue any day. Right now you take random numerical sequence. So you're going to go to a football game instead of trying to check everybody and do a unthorough job about it. And what you'll see with with entry point screening like that you're going to see i see this all the time you are going to see you know like i come in no problem you come in guy comes in with his wife no problem three girls come in three african-american teenage boys and the guy spends a half an hour checking them i was, I was at one school district observing this and they're just you know they're just barely passing the wand over and, now, and by the way the you know the two cases i'm talking about they're both african-americans running the metal detectors these are not white people or asian people these, these are both african-american operators and the one guy, you know, I mean, it's young men come up Hispanic or, or, or African-American and my God, it's empty your pockets. And he's just doing all this stuff. Well, the next one, I see, I'm, I'm standing here watching this and I can't believe everybody would just go ballistic. People are coming in, he's just wanding, And then three girls come up with burkas, and dear God, you know, it, it's, he's swanding these two, these three girls for like three minutes. I'm like, okay, why, why then? What, what do you, you know? So, When I go to CNN to interview, I'm metal detected, and it's very thorough. It takes about, you know, two minutes, and he's methodical. He does it the same way for everybody. Watch them metal detect people. You go in, I go in, do not know what we look like, it's done with the same process. Now, that takes too much time for most school venues. So while we were working with Broward County, Duval County had, I think, four people shot he had 57 police officers at a football game and metal and metal detectors. How did it happen? He did what many attackers have done in the past. He just waited outside the checkpoint. When the rival gang members came out, he knew they didn't have a gun or thought they probably would, then he shot. So to your point, you now have to protect the people outdoors. So there are times and places, more typically actually in our overseas work, where we recommend extra point metal detection, where usually labor is cheaper. You they have 35 security officers at a school. But uh, here it's usually, if you look at the money it takes and you're looking at you know some of these larger districts you know, you're talking about billions of dollars a year to do it right, is that the best place to park our money when we look at the things that really work well? Student supervision, uh, electronic hall pass systems to help reduce kids being out of place when they're not supposed to be, um, really good camera systems with analytics. So you're not just watching a bunch of cameras, but the cameras will pick up somebody climbing a fence, a special needs student running from the school, what we call elopement. You know, So it's not just stopping a gunman, it can help with a lot of things. Kids trying to, I was at a school that's had tremendous vaping problems and vaping is very much tied to school shootings and school violence. Um, and they were having a massive problem with it. And I, I talked to the guy, I just asked him about vaping, he said, oh man, they're killing us, whether they vaping every day, we're catching them everywhere. And somebody called him on the radio and said, I got four boys going over this fence. He goes, that's what they're doing. They're going to a store down the street to buy vapes. We get this every day and we're chasing these kids all over the neighborhood. So, you know, it it actually has, that's a good example. So we, uh, we've been deeply studying vaping for over two years now. Vaping in schools is massive, massive project and lots of research on it and so forth. And what we're seeing is a lot of lower level violence because of vaping. And then we're seeing big stuff like shootings because, like Marjory Stoneman Douglas, you know, they have a. They have, most people don't know this. They had a thousand full-time security people and a bunch of cops on duty in that district. It's a massive district, 25,000 classrooms. Well, at building 12 where the shooting occurred, they were having such an issue with vaping. They were locking the ground floor and upper floor bathrooms and making the kids go to the second floor and keeping a security officer there all day, every day. Now, nobody was able to really give us a figure on this, but they may have had a hundred people tied up every day, all day. And you're on the third floor. You've got to go down the second floor, go to the bathroom, inconveniencing all the kids for the acts of a few. And I can't tell you if it had any impact on the number of victims. But one, if you may remember, when on floor three, they tried to go in the bathroom. It was locked. They couldn't get in. I don't know whether he would have followed them in there or would have protected them. But that's the kind of thing we're seeing schools. We've got schools we've worked with that are adding a full-time school resource officer and a building administrator, $200,000 a year with benefits just to deal with vaping, which means they're not dealing with the type of things we were talking about before. Does that make sense? So when you're mm-hmm. talking about being holistic, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Are we Are we really looking at how to make schools? We have got, I've worked for three presidential administrations from both parties. The work done under the Clinton administration, George Bush Jr. Uh, We did some work with uh, President Obama. There was work I wasn't involved with under President Trump. Those four administrations with two different parties, all of them produce some extremely valuable tools. We've got mounds of research, free training, free guides that half the school officials in those countries have never heard of. And they'll go out and hire consultants for $15,000 a day when the federal government has services are trying that are better than that that are free does does that make sense i just spoke at a national conference yesterday uh i was trying to make police officers aware of all these resources um we had one of our analysts was testifying before congress yesterday on the same thing so so i'm taking so long but to boil it down let's look at what works before we talk about what might work and what you have to be careful of school officials are not security experts They're afraid, just like their staff, students, and parents. They don't know who to believe. They are bombarded with some of the craziest stuff we've ever seen. Ballistic whiteboards. We've had parents just urging to arm principals with fully automatic rifles. That that came up in Broward County. Parents were actively pushing hard. They want to put a gun safe with a fully automatic rifle in the principal's office of every school in Broward County. Ballistic shelters that are $20,000 a piece that make it very easy to kill anybody that goes inside that anybody can go and throw a lever and it'll stop a 308 caliber rifle, pretty heavy rifle, but it takes 13 minutes for a trained rescue crew to cut that thing open. If a boy grabs a girl, takes her in there, throws a lever and rapes her or a hostage taker. And I can kill anybody. And I'm not going to tell you how to do that, but I can kill everybody in that shelter in 30 seconds without a gun. It, it, it actually would make it easier to kill people. And there are, parents pushing for this stuff because it sounds like a good idea, but they haven't really thought this thing through. Is that making sense? It did. Absolutely. I mean, it's all about being thoughtful. There are a lot yes. of things that there are a lot
0: of things that sound like they're immediately intuitive, True. but they've got mm-hmm. to be thought through. And, and you're right. I mean, these administrators, this is not their, their key area of expertise and they are bombarded with a lot of things we deal. We've dealt with for years, not just with legitimate threats, but even how to handle you know, pretty obviously, illegitimate threats, and yeah, how yeah. much information should be out there, and how much, you know, how do you handle it, and what do you put out there, what the penalties would be, and all of that is a difficult and, and split second decision sure, these administrators so. have to make. So it's certainly not to criticize them; it's just to right. to know that these resources are are available to them that they may not know about. Um, you know. Well, One of the more incendiary proposals that some advocate for, um, you mentioned them wanting to arm principals with uh, semi-automatic weapons in in Florida. In Ohio, there is a push to allow for teachers to not only be armed, but to be armed with 24 hours of training for something like that. Is that a pragmatic solution or is that dangerous?
1: So we have had a few clients where we've suggested that some school staff be armed. Those are typically a Jewish school that really couldn't afford they were in the Boston area where it costs a hundred thousand dollars a year for a properly trained armed officer. But they had someone on staff who served in combat with the IDF, very well trained in firearms, you know, not a teacher in a classroom. And we said that could be considered. I've had one in Pennsylvania, the, you know, the PA State Police had suggested that someone at a Catholic school in a very remote area be armed. We agreed they had average emergency response time of 30 minutes. And th- those do occur that's not something we tend to move to. We agree with the National Association of School Resource Officers. We want either a trained law enforcement officer, our first choice, or a properly trained and equipped security officer. Now, one thing, you can go back and forth on the pros and cons of arming teachers. A lot of countries do it. Thailand, Israel, uh, you know, there are a number that do. Uh, Kenya, you know, in Kenya, it costs $5,000 for a gun permit. They hired what they call diplomatic police for six bucks a day. Uh, these are guys, they rent their, their full auto rifles out to drug dealers at night to make extra money. And they'll often run the first you know, round fired. And, you know, there we had somebody who was former IDF. And we said, look, you know, if you hire a security officer, pay five grand to get him trained. He's going to be worth a lot more money. He's going to leave you if you don't pay him an exorbitant salary. So we get that more overseas, actually. Um, places like India where the police are going to take a long time typically to respond if they know there's a gun involved or the police just aren't even around or they don't have them but in the U S it's pretty rare. And one of the concerns, you know, people talk about, will they be shot by the police? Will there be an accident with the gun, which has not been a huge problem. We predicted all these accidents there. I think it's been one or maybe two that I've heard of. What is a bigger problem is that what I call the shout and shoot. So the state of Florida, um, they're mandating that you have an armed officer in every school in the state has caused massive issues. When that happened, they were running 6,000 sworn officers a day short in Florida. So many of our larger districts we work with down there were like, we're 30, 300 officers short. We can't come up with, they, they couldn't come up with enough officers if, if they had the budget. And, you know, and part of that, they cut the budget for SROs when they mandated that, and they used the money as a one-time grant. So they lost a lot of money to pay for SROs. And a lot of the agencies said, we're not, you're gonna have to pay for them. And here the school districts really take an effective budget cut. But the biggest thing is they, you know, I think most people's preference above arming staff would be those, what they call the armed guardians. They do get very good training, pretty good screening. And typically they're hiring pretty good people, but they're what we call shout and shoots. Okay. People. They're, they're thinking, okay, there's gonna be an active shooter. It's gonna be a no-brainer. Here's somebody shooting children down. Yes, we shoot. I was a cop in a school district for 10 years. I was attacked with a weapon between my 10 years at the university and 10 years there. I had 16 people try to attack me with a weapon. Some of those were guns. One was a bayonet. Uh, you know, a guy tried to run me down with a BW Beetle, at least tried to kill me with a good car, expensive car. Um, you know, uh, just different things. People got baseball bat. And I was able to not shoot any of those 16 people because I had far more training than most cops get, better than FBI didn't get. Um, and the best equipment you could possibly have and a lot of confidence in it. But I didn't just have a gun. I had training on verbal de-escalation, verbal commands. I had pepper spray. I had a collapsible baton. Now they have a taser. And so a concern I have is people think You know, it's it's a no brainer if the guy is shooting a bunch of people. But what you're going to get is a drunk grandmother who's 86 who's threatening staff with a knife in the office and Mm. shot. Right. Um, They're not allowed typically to have any physical contact with anybody because they're so afraid they're going to beat somebody up or whatever. So they don't get open hand control or strength training. They're not getting uh, perhaps I don't know about Florida, but they're not getting weapon retention training. What do you do when someone tries to take your weapon? So you got your weapon holster or you've got it in your hand. You know, there, there's, a, there's a lot to it. I, my police officers in a school district, they receive, we qualified every month with, with our duty fire, our handgun, uh, not counting our patrol rifles, but we fired 3,000 rounds of duty hollow point ammunition every year. We only fired what we carried. That's very important because practice rounds often have a different recoil than the type of duty round. And that brings up another question. What type of ammunition are they carrying? Because you you don't want something that's going to overpenetrate, you know, and endanger you know, other people. So there's a lot, there's a lot of questions I have about it beyond those basic. I, I don't like the concept of arming teachers because we're already working shootings because of this crazy active shooter train that's so dangerous is causing a lot of casualties and massive lawsuits, run, hide, fight, the Alice train that's very popular in Ohio. I I was an expert witness on a lawsuit, five settlements out of court from a school district and a sheriff's department where it absolutely catastrophically failed. Untrained people perform better than people trained in Alice or Runhide Fight or any of these very popular but poorly designed and trained programs And you know uh, you sit there and you say, okay we got teachers so Alice teaches alert. So you like notify that there's a shooting, but then they teach you to like get a description of the shooter and broadcast it. And so we get stuff like in this particular shooting, we've had it in our simulations. And when the principals told there's an active shooter on the playground, instead of calling for lockdown and calling nine one one, she grabs a radio and her little bag. She tells two other staff to do the same. They go looking for the shooter alert. You're supposed to get a description, right? Mm-hmm. Two staff are in the office. She doesn't tell them lockdown or call police. So it doesn't get done. Then they've got these phone apps that everybody thinks are so great, right, which now we see may have failed at Uvalde. We've been warning people for a decade. They may look great at a trade booth, but in our experience, they typically don't work for one or two reasons. The shooting I'm talking about, what they say may have happened at Uvalde, happened here. Five teachers pressed that active shooter button. Not a single message went out. Another delay and police being notified. First officer arrived in 17 minutes. They had to dispatch officers across four school districts trying to figure out where the shooting was because they were getting incomplete information, right? So a lot of this stuff, clear backpacks, phone apps, uh, bulletproof shelters, ballistic shields, ballistic whiteboards, it's really unsound. And phone apps, Use the right way, not as a primary means of notification, but things like some of the systems let you tell how many students are in your classroom quickly, and things like that. That's fine. A backup device, that's fine. But mm-hmm. you know, we see this over and over. The other thing that happens with them, by the way, we've never assessed a school district or a Jewish school or a Catholic school where they had those. And when we run scenarios, which is one thing we do, is run scenarios to see how well staff can perform the action steps that would be needed. You know, can they do what their training says they should be able to do? And we often find it's very different. They've never been able to work the devices. They just, just the mild stress of a scenario, their hands start shaking, they can't open the phone, they hit the wrong button. So they hit the button for tornado instead of lockdown, lockdown instead of tornado, either which could cause mass casualties. So what I tell people is first, don't take action on an incident where we really don't even know what happened. I've worked 23 of these. The questions I have are far different from what most people are talking about. I've I've had questions from the beginning. Yeah, we need to look at the police response, but the opportunity to save lives in this type of case is in the first 20, 30 seconds. So why do we have a classroom not locked for, if what they're telling us is correct, four minutes after the shooting starts? Um, and we got a teacher in an interview, Now again, he was traumatized, might not be accurate, but he's saying, the door to his classroom was open when the attacker came in. This is minutes after the shooting started. Now, I do know that they use another popular, you know, these what we call alphabet plans. They use the standard response protocol, wildly popular, test off the charts, bad. It, it doesn't work well. It has a lot of flaws with it. And that's what the state of Texas recommends for schools. And that's what that district used. Whether that caused or contributed to these 21 fatalities, I don't know. I just know that nine out of 10 times When presented with a lockdown scenario in real-time simulations, SRP trained staff failed to lock down. It has a, a horrific fail rate. It failed in another active shooter case I worked. In that case, it did not cause any fatalities or injuries, but it did fail. I mean, it didn't work. So, you know, these quick, easy fixes are what we're seeing. Not only not necessarily reduce our problems, but increase them. We're seeing increased casualties. Just the run, hide, fight, analysis training just four shootings, we've had over $130 million paid out by law enforcement agencies and school systems on out-of-court settlements. That's just for four. I'm working five as an expert witness right now.
0: So we talk about a lot of the popular things that that don't work. Right. There's, you know, we're sitting here, it's, it's mid-July, a lot of districts figuring out what they want to tweak, what they want to do differently as they go back this year. What, what, can they realistically do that that yeah. is effective?
1: We'll give you a few of them. Uh, we're a nonprofit and go to our website. We have over 50 free training videos. Um, on the homepage of our website, we just released three free training videos on one of the most powerful tools to save lives in schools, and that's improved student supervision. And so there are three videos, at total runtime is about 14 minutes, but you can run them in sections. So you can do like five minutes of this staff meeting and five another. If you can have thoughtful, effective student supervision, you will dramatically reduce your risk of of life from homicide, active shooter event, tornado, because first of all, you can prevent a lot of shootings with things like good supervision and hall pass management. Um, And then if you have one, we know that speed to safety is faster. If you have a tornado, if you have an earthquake, if you have a shooting, an active shooter especially, You can get kids to lock down or out of the building faster if you have good supervision. So you got adults to tell students where to go. Death from medical emergency, abduction of children, sexual assault, vandalism in the school. Those three videos do something else. In addition to reducing injuries and death, kids being hit in the parking lot, one of our more common causes of death. You not only do that, but you will help the school system do something many of them struggle with. We wanna reduce expulsions, arrests of students out of court, or I'm sorry, out of class, out of, a, out of school suspension, so forth. The best way to do that is not have events, right? If we don't mm-hmm. have a not do we arrest them, do we not? Improve student supervision, especially done with what we call hotspot mapping. We use either uh, paper diagrams of the building and a group of students or better yet, GIS mapping software. You can identify your trouble spots by getting feedback from a representative sampling of students. Clark County Public Schools did that, and they used a very like a 12 minute training program we built for them on student supervision. They saw a 50 percent reduction in their high and middle schools of you know fights, bullying and self-reported data, as well as reported data, arrests, suspensions, expulsions. So that is one of the most powerful tools. Now, if you're in a state with, uh, you know, some of the states are different with union agreements so perhaps in new york or new jersey you may not be able to utilize teachers to class supervise outside the classroom so they can spend a million dollars a year on campus monitors and so forth but whoever's doing the supervising should be trained on it and teachers you know even in that context we show in there how to move students from say the classroom to the media center and improve supervision perhaps putting them in a double line so the double row so they're not stretched out When you get to a corner, the students stop till the teacher comes up from the back or the side, gets to the intersection so they can see both ways. Then the students go. go, We now maintain line of sight on both sides. So it's one of the least expensive ways to reduce risk of death from many different things, including the most common. It's, you know, barring the union issue and maybe having to hire people at some points, it's, it's very inexpensive and and it 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 also by the way uh gives teachers back increased instructional time in the classroom Uh, i'm not going to go into detail for sake of time so there's a lot of benefits of that i mentioned before e-hall passes that i'm not the guy that jumps up and down about technology but electronic hall pass systems especially for large high schools and middle schools we got a lot of kids you can go to the restroom and go here when they're supposed to be in class Mm -hmm. that is absolutely one of the best investments you can make It, it they are they do so many things First of all, they give the kids privacy, I don't have to raise my hand and say I- I've got to go to the bathroom. And the teacher says, "Well, we're not really supposed to let you go to the bathroom." But I have diarrhea in front of all these kids, or I got to go yeah. see the counselor because my parents went through a divorce. It, it's either a one-to-one tablet or a tablet in a kiosk. But I, I message the teacher. The teacher approves or disapproves. The teacher approves. Everybody knows that Mike Dorn has permission to go from room 201 to the bathroom on the second hallway. If you see me, you can quickly tell, okay, he's got a pass. If you see me on the third hallway, you know I'm not where I'm supposed to be. He's got a timer to tell me when to go back to class. It alerts the teacher, hey, Mike didn't come back yet. The principal can see, wait a minute, gosh, Mike Dorn is getting a pass every class period from every class teacher every day. Because you're giving them a pass, I'm giving them a pass, and we think we're the only one. And the kid's going vaping every single class period, right? They're addicted. They typically have to vape pretty frequently, usually about every 50 minutes. Uh, No contact orders. You got a boyfriend-girlfriend situation, no contact order, but they have to attend the same school. You put both names in. If the ex-boyfriend goes to the restroom, the girlfriend can't go until he gets back. Gang members, you know, you can take group of kids that have done stuff with gang activity and only one can be out of place at one time three kids caught vaping that type of thing so those are a couple real effective ones now the big stuff that that is a bit more involved that's also among our most valuable tools are student threat assessment and management properly trained good assessment tool not just saying we do it but having police officers mental health and law enforcement and school officials trained to work as a team to use uh, approaches that they can be, they can learn from the federal government. I and mean, there's just tons of resources on this and they can take that. And it's not just, did somebody make a threat? The issue is, do they pose a threat? And if they do, what do we do about it? Just locking them up or committing them with a the Baker act doesn't mean they're not going to come back and you know kill people. Right. So it's, it's how to develop a safety plan. That's incredibly important. That's a big issue. That's what we call a standard of care issue, by the way, and litigation. If you're not doing that to a certain standard, I'd say for most school districts and larger non-publics, that's going to be a problem if you do have an event and you're much more likely to have an event. It's also a valuable school improvement tool. Most of the kids you'll find out aren't really dangerous. They just, you know, they're under pressure. They say things they shouldn't, but there's a problem. But locking them up and kicking them out is not going to solve it. They're not dangerous, but they need help. It'll help test scores. It'll help the dropout rate. I mean, it's a good quality improvement tool. Then the next one that's really big is self-harm. Teaching students and staff how to recognize indicators of self-harm and then having a formal assessment process. That's important because we have two suicides on school property for every victim killed by an active shooter. So when you look at the numbers, you're saying, wow, we got – you know, all these teachers and principals and staff and kids shooting themselves, cutting their wrists, you know, those type of things. Uh I, I won't get into some of the public display suicides we're seeing. They're just horrific, but they kill themselves in a horrific way in front of 300 kids. So then you look at all the districts and especially non-public schools that are getting sued for the suicide of a student off campus, where they allege it's a school fault because of bullying, or they didn't do what they are supposed to do. I've worked a number of those cases. Then you get... The rare case. Most people who are high risk for suicide pose no risk to you or I. They pose risk to themselves. But if you look at you know many of these attacks, they plan to kill themselves or die in the attack. A pretty significant number of them. So Sandy Hook, though it's a higher ed case, the uh, shooting at Virginia Tech, Columbine, the Parkland shooting. He clearly intended to kill himself and then changed his mind. Uvalde he planned to die you know he he died in a gunfight with the police officers but you know self-harm prevention may I don't know again I can't make any firm opinions on that case I don't know how much of what we're hearing is true it keeps changing and there's far from a complete investigation at this point um I've worked 23 of these and never like look look like what they look like in the public forum when you mm-hmm. actually see the video it's just usually so much different but you know he he apparently did plan to die right And so you might call that suicide by cop. He's going to die in a hell of gunfire. But, you know, so you take those cases. That's another way to help prevent them. Now, a lot of people don't realize, by the way, the significant percentage of our planned fatal shootings in K-12 schools are carried out by school employees, just like they're carried out by medical doctors in hospitals, university professors, police officers, soldiers, people that work in factories. You, You know, you just go down the list, right? Some people in any We've got nine million school employees so occasionally we're going to have if you had a i don't know a particular sector in this country we had nine million people doing something you're probably going to have some of those people do that as well but you know uh uh, pasadena middle school the administrator killed five people he killed two at the district office or three at the district office also put a woman in a wheelchair for life and then went to a school killed two of the staff you know uh, teacher in a counseling session in Canada, 1901, Mennonite teacher, uh, first grade teacher. He killed three elected trustees with a pistol, then goes across the street and he kills all three of their kids and, and one in the one room schoolhouse. So, and this is global. I mean, Austria, a case in Vietnam, they, you know, they very strict gun control there, but they had a case in the Mekong Delta where a Get two married school administrators. I think the lady didn't get a promotion. Her husband went to the what we would call the district office, threw battery acid on some victims, and went back to her school and attacked some more people. You know, so again, this stuff is global. It just they often change weapon type. They'll use fire, they'll use knives, you know. But when you when you're still looking like the Daegu subway attack, he killed 192 people in a very modern. Um, subway system with fire detection and suppression equipment, right? This is not a developing country where they don't have fire protection. You kill 192 people and wounded, I think about 200 severely wounded. So, you know, where there's a will, there's a weapon, where there's a weapon, there's a way. And we, because we work internationally and we research so much, we get a much better handle on what's going on in India and different places, I have a very different picture <laughs> to what most people do here. But as those help, those are some of the bigger ones.
0: Well, I appreciate your time very much Mike Dorn um we uh, we've covered a lot. there's a lot a lot more that we could get it seems sure. like every topic we've hit here could we have been its them. own discussion yeah, yeah. of this yeah. length um, but it's a lot to think about. it's a lot for uh, for administrators around here to think about also sure. um, you mentioned your website and the the tools that are available there. can you give that again what is that website for anybody Yes I
1: can we work a lot in Ohio we've been up for quite a bit um a lot of good programs up there too. Um, it's, uh, www.SafeHavens, plural, SafeHavensInternational.org, www.SafeHavensInternational.org. You can also just type Michael Doran School Safety. It'll come up and I'd suggest they go to our resources section. We have free videos, free audio podcasts, free guides, manuals, books. You know, so we're a nonprofit and we can only handle about 75% of requests for work since 2018. Um, so one of the things we do, if we can't help people, we'll refer them to others. We, you know, we get booked up pretty heavily. Um, but so one of the things we constantly do is put out new free training videos, free resources. Uh, we can recommend free government programs. There's a lot, our, our government, you know, I gotta say they've done some things I don't like, like run, hide, fight, it's very dangerous. That came from the federal government. Um, but most of what they've done, U.S. Department of Ed, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Protection Agency, uh, you know, Secret Service. I mean, there, there's a lot of really good resources out there. And that's one of the things we do a lot is direct people to where they can get what they need. Does that make sense? It
0: does. And, and a lot of what you said has made a lot of sense. I appreciate you being with us today. And thank you very much. Thank you so much, sir. You have a great afternoon. You too. Thanks. Bye.